So last week, we gave away the four seats uh, for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness uh, online program. Uh, the actual four people started the program this week. I wanted to thank everyone for participating and entering. Uh, and I know it was probably, uh, we got so many uh, entries, I was blown away, So, which was brilliant. Uh, so in, uh, in July, we're going to offer a few more seats for the program that starts in August. Uh, so uh, wait, uh, and hopefully that'll be your lucky time. Uh, the the program itself, as you may know, is run by James Herman. It's designed by him in partnership with Wark. And you can learn more about it at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Academy, and thank you to the uh, to the team for making that happen. If you or one of your clients want to reach client side and agency marketers, just like the Master of, of Advertising Effectiveness program, you can download our sponsor kit and learn more about our audiences at OnStrategyShowcase.com. Now back to today's episode. Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. Here's a clip from today's show. I've been observing for a number of years what it is that people keep on talking about and disagreeing and um these are the topics really that were selected that i could do in the in the year that i had um so most of those were written uh last year so it was a combination of monitoring what is being discussed out there what is being discussed and also what are the things that we don't seem to be agreeing that's Mary Kiriakidi, global thought leader at Kantar. Her latest report is Modern Marketing Dilemmas, an evidence-based guide to help marketers protect their margins. The report is free to download, and we'll uh, have a link to it on our episode page on our website. And hopefully I'll remember to also drop it in the show notes. There, um, As many of us know, there's a number of very strong, opinionated, and credible voices in our industry. And if you're aware of them, you also know that they often disagree with each other. So it's uh, it's tough for some of us as strategists and marketers to understand who do we believe and who do we not. Um, so I think in part what Mary was trying to do with this report and across eight short chapters is to prevent, kind of present these various perspectives and tips to help us sort of understand what these different voices have in common and also what Kantar's perspective on top of those topics adds to the entire conversation. Uh, each of the chapters in the report uh, poses a single question, such as where does performance marketing meet brand building? Uh, how can you prove marketing adds value to your brand? What role does brand play in the customer journey? or, or uh, is it still okay to talk about brand loyalty? Now, these are not new topics, and the goal of the report is not about uh, introducing new new topics, but helping us sort of reconcile the various voices that are out there for some of these uh, recognized uh, dilemmas, as, as the report might call them. So be sure to download the report, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy our conversation today. We'll be right back with Mary Kiriakidi. Hello and welcome to the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Which is this campaign for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness, a six-week online program in partnership with Walk that'll give you a next-level understanding of the evidence-based principles of advertising effectiveness. The very same principles we've used to create this. The most effective advertising campaign in the world. 
Over the coming years, you'll experience a campaign that's perfectly budgeted and targeted over both the short and long terms and replete with emotion, distinctive assets, and most importantly, creativity. It will at some point result in you visiting our website, mae.academy, signing up, becoming a master of advertising effectiveness, and also becoming a piece of hard evidence that this is in fact the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Welcome, Mary. Oh, thank you for having me, Focus. I mean, I've been I've been an admirer of your show for a number of years, so it's it's actually a, a pinch myself moment uh, that I'm on it, uh, and it would probably be an understatement to say that I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, thank you for hey, having me. Oh, it's great to have you. We've uh, we've been trying to make this happen for a while, but our calendars didn't come together. And then in March of this year, 2023, um, you released a report uh, through Cantar which is the modern marketing dilemmas. And it just seemed to kind of create the perfect opportunity for us to chat about it. You know, it's it's interesting because um, you describe a number of different marketing dilemmas. And I'm curious, why are we in a, a time of dilemmas? And, and what are we grappling with at this point um, as an industry? Hmm. Well, to be honest, Honest, I think we've we've ever not had dilemmas in marketing. Uh, but what's interesting, I suppose, in this discipline is that these dilemmas, you know, any conundrums that professionals uh, in marketing have, have been actually quite enduring. So for decades, we've been talking and not necessarily agreeing on specific things, despite, despite having tons of data. So um, what I have observed is that we we have extremely polarizing views as well. And I suppose, you know, this is largely down to human nature. You know, we all love a good verbal fight, but maybe marketers a little bit more. Um, and for many of these challenges that we face, we seem to have moved on like over the course of a decade from one inordinate view to another. So we seem to be taking sides. Um but I think this is larger down to what you just said when you introduced the question. You, the, you know, the, the the for every finding, it's not a science. Marketing is not a science. For every finding, there's probably an example that contradicts it, and and none of the data truths are obsolete. And whenever I talk about this, about marketing not being science, but more like a discipline that uses pockets of science, I always think of. Um, Peter Marcus Ward, he's uh, he's the CMO at Boots. He always describes it as as in the modern marketing having to be a little bit of an artist, a little bit of a scientist, a little bit of a champion for marketing in the business. And you know, we need to strike that balance. Do you think that's because we don't have sort of agreed upon methodologies upon which we gather data, and also the recognition that data isn't necessarily truth? I think I think largely what the problem is that we are actually still grappling with our place in the business and um, you know trying to justify continuously that that marketing creates value for the business and sometimes we even struggle to speak the same language as the CFO or the CEO and um, I've. Uh, I've, I've listened to a very, I've watched actually a very interesting conversation between um, Cheryl, Cheryl um, Calverley and Helen Edwards. They were talking at the Festival of Marketing, um, the Transform, um, and they talked about the fact that 
you know, we're still trying to convince the business that marketing is not a cost. And 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 out of all the names that marketing has been called, you know, the cost is probably up there at the top of the list of use. But we have this challenge, you know, we're trying to justify our place in the business. And then we we have the other challenge of of picking an extreme and I and I this is there there's a, a discern if you ask me uh, you know and you do uh, there's a discernible dichotomy there and this is what I try to do with a modern marketing that we try to do with a modern marketing dilemma gu- dilemmas guide so um it comes from a place where we generally wanted to answer burning questions or for data you know examples of brands to make the case but also it's a guide uh, that was conceived with a with a growing desire to synthesize you know the new data doesn't necessarily invalidate existing truths but it actually proves that another path exists too i wonder if a part of this because it has at least from my perspective the subject of effectiveness um is has become i think um a much more center stage than it used to be and and as are the, the debates the debates about many of the topics we're going to talk about today and and I'm wondering is it is part of the confusion here that that um we have more data than we ever have had in the past and be, and sort of behavior that is tied to our data that is tied both to behaviors and transaction and is part of it sort of being able to um package that, rationalize that, understand that, because some of that data points us towards behaviors on the be on, on the side of marketers that are counterproductive. And I'm thinking very much like perform uh, as too much of a of an emphasis on performance marketing, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely, and this is a very good example, I suppose. And it's a perfect demonstration of the extremes that I was talking about before, because the the return on investment thing you know it's it, it's been very popular since the 1920s but it was much later on with the rise of digital uh, measurement tools that the marketing ROI practice became more tangible you know it was easier to calculate it and although it was very exciting of course it's very exciting for any executive it, it also becomes very easy to keep on using them, just uh, I suppose it goes back to human nature again. So the short-term tactics are easier to measure, yes, more tangible, uh, as we said before. And and there is this tendency that what is easy to do, you do more of. Um, and, and therefore, uh, money tends to go towards the short-term tactics in this case that are easy to prove. Uh, you know, look at my data promotions. I told you there were going to be a huge uh, a return on investment, and then you get more money for that. So um, that's a that's a vicious circle uh, that begins there, and you get entrapped in it. So when you when you guys were were uh, thinking about putting out this report, what was it that you wanted to achieve? The main thing um, that I want to do is simplify our thinking and connect it to the thinking that's out there. So I was very clear from the beginning that I want to embrace opposing views. I want to I want to understand. I want to understand for me, for uh, uh, our clients, for uh, for the people who are representing the business. What is it that we're saying um, as an industry? You talk about it as an evidence based guide, and um, and you talk about various topics. One is is where does performance marketing meet brand building? Another one is what role does brand play in the consumer decision journey? 
is brand differentiation an effective way to reduce customer price sensitivity? These are these are examples of it. So when it, when it comes to the first topic, which is where does performance marketing meet brand building? What does Kantar's point of view add to that debate out there? There is um, there's compelling evidence actually that unbalanced brands will not win in the long term. So we have um, multiple studies, actually, from the business, from the counter business, reveal that if marketing mix allocation consistently favors performance marketing, baseline volume sales will steadily weaken, uh, right? And there's this beautiful um, chart. I mean, it's not beautiful and it's dreadful because of what it shows, but it's beautiful in terms of a wake-up call. Uh, So there's this chart there that vividly shows that neglecting brand building results in results in um, base uh, sales decrease and a greater reliance on performance marketing. Uh, And it's, it's quite powerful. I had Byron Sharp on the show a couple of months ago. You know, we had a, a good discussion about about brand and the role of the brand. And, you know, I come from some of the agencies that I've worked with in my career, you know, really talked about brand onions and these various devices to articulate the various perspectives and attributes of brands. And I found it, in retrospect, to be completely over the top. But some agencies do that. They think of brands as being multifaceted. They're almost human-like in their characteristics and in the values they want to express. And and Byron suggests that that's completely fanciful. And he makes a good point about the fact that people think very little about our brands. And we within the industry think that that it's all they think about and we can have make dramatic changes to how they think about it. But I'm wondering, what does your work suggest in terms of the role that the brand plays uh, in the uh, sort of decision journey for, for a customer? People and brands live and interact alongside each other. So people unavoidably form thoughts, feelings, you know, they gather facts and anecdotes, they have experiences, frustrations often, sometimes even hopes, um, you know, towards a product and a service when, when, when um, things get really tough. So it's, so it's these cumulative associations that um, steer consumers' decision in a purchasing situation. And this is what we believe. So, so, uh, so simply put, you know, it's the sum of all positive and negative attitudes and experiences that a consumer has developed towards a brand that defines whether it, consumers will ultimately pick it and or often, you know, pick it again. So at Kantar, we talk about this predisposition. In fact, the persistent nudge called predisposition. And we have... Um, uh, analysis that we repeated recently as well that um, revealed that two-thirds of growth comes from people who are already predisposed to choose a specific brand. I love a, um, a sentence from your report. I'll, I'll read it out here. As you say, it could have been something that Maya Angelou would have said, but it probably isn't. But it's it's perfect for this discussion, which is people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel. And, and, and that's a, a wonderful human truth, that, that, that if, you can, if you can make a connection, a genuine connection with people in a meaningful way, 
Um, and that's sort of where the distinction between brand and performance marketing tends to be talked about. So I'm curious, do you guys also see it that way? Yes. I mean, we, we believe that perceptions can drive behavior and that, and that behavior drives sales. And I suppose to your point about the Aaron Babas Institute, this is probably where disagree with them or they disagree with us. I don't know, both. Um, so they believe that it's sales that strongly affect perception. So just to give you a very tangible example, their book, How Brands Grow, is very popular. People buy it for that. Then they read it and get convinced it's good. So uh, in their view, it's sales that affect perceptions. Now, we don't disagree, but we we actually believe that the other way around is 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 true too. Uh, so perceptions can drive behavior, and and that behavior drives sales. Um, and there is evidence actually that suggests that um, both both are correct. But in order for that to happen, you know, in in with your example, there has to be a desire to buy it. There has to be word of mouth to circulate it amongst people. So, yeah, and, and they must. They must. One of the other topics that's that's um, that's talked about a lot, and there's a lot of ambiguity between it because I think many people struggle, and I I will say that I struggle with with uh, clearly remembering the difference between differentiation versus distinction. But what is from your work? What do you what do you want to add to that conversation, or how do you feel about this topic of of differentiation versus distinction? Are you in one camp or the other, or how would you define it? There's growing um, recognition that to influence consumers' choice, brand managers need to tap into the both layers of the of the thinking process. So the fast and the slow, you know, what, what Kahneman first referred to as system one and system two. Um, so, so within that, um, differentiation and distinctiveness play uh, an equally important role because um, it's the kind of dual engine uh, that I mentioned that brand managers need to crank up. One of the other key things that I really liked a lot in the report was uh, you posed the question, uh, can your ad be retold without referencing your brand? In other words, if somebody's describing what they've what they've seen or how they're recalling your brand, um, if they're not able to include uh, the brand name, then that's a huge opportunity lost. Is that the best way to interpret what you guys intend by that? Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, well. Uh, Yes and no. So the, the, the biggest waste in advertising is probably likely linked to non-attribution. So you you uh, we remember the the ad, for instance, but we don't remember what brand they 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 were advertising, or maybe sometimes we actually attribute it to the wrong brand, which is very frustrating yeah. for the brand, right? Itself. But um but if we fix that, is all okay? Uh, no, because you see people still need to relate it to what they're saying and done a lot of research on how to improve the branding of uh tv advertising and we found that uh branding is strongest when the story of the ad simply cannot be retold without reference to the brands so um 
It's not through uh, introducing the brand's name like early and often, as instinctively most of us think, but but rather it's about making the brand well integrated in the story, making the brand like integral to the most memorable memorable part of the ad, and um, and in the example that we're using in the report is that we 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 tested and featured it in there like five percent of the ads content generated 45% of the recall as it, you know it was the pinnacle of emotional engagement in the ad there's a lot of topics in the report and as you said earlier people can download it and, and read out uh, read through each of them but i've got to sort of jump around so one one thing that i really wanted to touch on because it's it's um it's another example of going against the sort of conventional wisdom which is this whole discussion around brand loyalty um, there's been assumptions that have been around for decades that are still quoted today, like the the eighty twenty rule. And I'm wondering, what have you guys learned uh, about loyalty and uh, um, your sense around whether loyalty exists or the degree to which it which is it exists? The truth is that the percentages are not always accurate. And when professor of marketing um, John Benedict. Um, Steenkamp, he presented his uh, cross-category findings with a with a with a buyer frequency distribution that r- was resembling the shape of uh, um, a flipped uh, ice hockey stick. It was very clear that um, the eighty twenty rule wasn't quite accurate. Again, you know, uh, so he concluded that twenty percent of the brands users, uh, so the, the the ones who are fra- frequently buying the brand, actually account for 50% of the sales volume, not 80. And then we repeated um, the the exercise and we used the categories using the world panel data um, from Kantar uh, and we used 200 FMG uh, categories and we replicated again this flipped ice hockey stick and we and we found that heavy buyers account for 60% of category spending. So again, not a, ne- a negligible uh, amount, but um, you know, you don't want to solely focus on them and ignore the remaining 40% of the category sales. You've got to make sure that, you know, the name of the game is going beyond the loyalty-based marketing and, and expanding your window for growth potential via shoppers who who have not yet previously engaged with your brand or maybe lapsed ones, right? But a more balanced approach, this is what the data suggests. Yeah, it's interesting because we we hear on this show a lot about sort of frustrations about you know departments and uh, departments that are dedicated to CRM and it creates these sort of fiefdoms within cultures because uh, people uh, be, become very dogged about their belief that CRM and um, and loyalty is such, are such a is a much bigger thing than it might be. I, I think through reading some of uh, your report and 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 others, it's the recognition now which I think is a key thing is that there are very few people that are exclusively loyal to any one brand. Yes. There are people that are always wear Nikes or always drive Fords, but that's a very, very small percentage of people. Can I get you just to sort of summarize the report and, and um, uh, let us know what it is you want to make sure people take away from it. Don't be quick to pick a side, rather listen carefully to both sides and consider a more balanced approach. The answer most frequently lies somewhere in between. 
So this is this is what we found to be true in every single dilemma that we debated in the guide. Yeah, it's it's really important because I think a lot of us, a lot of us, uh, particularly in the U.S., um, there's a tendency to think that every uh, marketer uh, knows all about these various voices coming from various places around the world, and and it's not the case that you know not not all marketers are have massive budgets. There are those with modest budgets and small budgets who need to be convinced of this. And if you're just re- if you're just relying on one voice, one source for that, it's very easy for that for that organization or that board to say, "Well, we we don't think that we don't believe in that data. We think let let let's let time pass and see what happens next year and see if things change." So when you have three, four different voices from recognized organizations, um, that I think is reflected a lot in this report. Now you've now you've dimensionalized it. It's hard to ignore this when you have multiple people from different organizations supporting various points of view, but sharing more in common than what's different across these these various organizations: Kantar, Ehrenberg, Bass, etc. So I, I really applaud the fact that there's a document out there that that recognizes that there's another way to look at it, and there's there's now an additional source that we can use to help make the case. It is Mary Kiria Kidi. She is global thought leader at Kantar out of London. And uh, I'm really excited to have the chance to have you on the on the show. Kantar is a supporter, uh, and they just recently sponsored our travel series. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Fergus. And we'll see everyone on the next episode.